Good morning. Hey, so we started the Saturday service. Any of you guys explored the Saturday service yet? Yeah. yeah I know you're here on Sunday, but it's been very cool. Um, but there's been a couple families that always sat in the front row and they moved to Saturday. So you guys are making me feel a little self-conscious. So next Sunday, some of you need to uh, fill... I could, I could even tell you who they are, but I don't want to embarrass them. But it's funny, you know, you guys sit in the same seats a lot, um, almost exclusively. And then sometimes I'm like, hey, I didn't see you at church. And people are like, well, how did you know I wasn't there? I'm like, because there was a big empty spot where you always sit. If you, if you want to fly under the radar, move around a lot. Otherwise, I know who's not sitting in those three seats. So anyway, none of that has anything to do with what we're talking about today. So grab your Bibles. Uh, with electronic readers, whatever you use, uh, it's working. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, I'm super excited about the particular verse that we're uh, looking at today as we work our way through Colossians in the series that we've called Enough and Is Enough. Um, but I also just want to kind of give you fair warning. I think it's a really complicated verse. I think it's a verse that can create confusion in us. So you're going to have to kind of dig in and stay with me as I move through this um, it's, it's just been a hard one to figure out how to, how to put in front of you in a way that we could all hold on to it. So, so far as we've been in this series, we've discovered that our only chance for a meaningful, joyful life is to follow and walk with Jesus, right? So we've talked about how most of Colossians is talking about uh, elevating Jesus above anything else. And anytime we bring anything into our life, whether it's people or stuff that competes with Jesus, it creates havoc in our life. That's really the underlying theme of Colossians. That's why we've called it enough is enough, because there's times in our lives where we're finally fed up with all of the chaos. We've had enough. And then we discover in that that Jesus is indeed enough. If that's not going to work, we don't have to use it. <laughs> or I could just keep talking. I'm afraid he's like making bunny ears behind me or something. I'm not used to somebody being behind me. Uh, one of the things we saw the first week at Colossians is that when we put Jesus first, there are these, these seven uh, outcomes that come from it, that we become discerning, we become faithful, we become productive, we become maturing, empowered, joyful, and thankful. And, and if you just looked at this list, you the question really is, do you want that? Like, or a better question is, who doesn't want that, right? Who doesn't want to have a, a better sense of discernment? What is God saying to me? What does God want for me? Who doesn't want when they put their hands to something to be more productive, for, for that to, to bear fruit, right? Who doesn't want to be empowered by the Spirit and, and faithful? Who doesn't want to be growing as a person and as a follower of Christ? And then, obviously, joyful and thankful are just things that we need, things that we want, right? And so the whole idea that is, as we are rooted, built up, established in the faith, these are available to us. So the passage we have this morning kind of just takes us in another step towards having all of this as a part of our daily lives, okay? So that's where we're going. Let me just read for you Colossians 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. It says, and then you've been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Good news? For sure. Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another 
seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed, just so you know that's in present tense, ongoing, renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another in all. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, one more time, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Colossians. Thank you for this uh, letter that has... Uh, uh, been given to us as a gift from you, your word, 2,000 years later that we can stand in a church in Detroit and read about a letter that was written in the ancient world and learn what it means to walk with you faithfully. We just thank you for uh, the scriptures and the fact that you've made them available to us so that we could learn more about you. I pray this morning that each person in this room would hear something specifically for them, that you would say something to them, that you would particularize them, that they would leave here with a word from you as we pray every Sunday, that they would leave different than they came because they've interacted with the living and powerful God. Lord, I just thank you in this moment for Norflet and the worship team that led us this morning. I'm just so grateful for, for him and his partnership with me and the rest of us here at Grace. And uh, I just wanna say thank you for the gift that is Norflet and the, all of the shoemakers and those who led us in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, another little side note, when I was sitting over there, um, I just felt compelled that we need to do something different this morning for, for just a second. Uh, so there's a camera there and a camera there, and I don't know which camera is on right now, but everybody just needs to turn around and look at the camera and thank all of the workers in the cafe that serve you guys every morning. Just say, hey, cafe people, we're really thankful for you. Thank you. You gotta wave at all the cameras and make sure they get you out of, anyway. I just, I think sometimes that's a pretty thankless thing. They're just in there working away, so. Anyway, thank you. All right, chapter three, it opens with this classic, and we saw it last week too, it's all throughout the scriptures, these, these if-then statements. If this is true, then this is gonna happen. If you do this, then you can expect this. It's throughout the scriptures, and this is another one of those if-then statements. It says, if you have been raised with Christ, right? If you have been raised with Christ, meaning if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have made a decision to surrender your will to the will of God, if you've said, God, whatever I'm trying to do isn't working, so I'm gonna do it your way, right? So if you are in Christ, then the first thing that needs to happen is you need to seek the things that are above. So we do that, but if you look at verse two, he tells us how. How are we to seek the things above? And he says, you are to set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. And what I want you to hear this morning is what you think about matters. What you allow to process and go through your mind makes a big difference. What you are obsessing about matters. 
right? Our imaginary conversations that keep us up at night, they matter. The hurts and wounds that you can't let go of, that you continue to mull over in your, in your mind, they matter. The worries and anxieties that trump out the peace of God in your life, it all matters. Your worldly desires, even things that you want, whether it's financial or sexual, whatever that is, that sometimes you find yourself lusting for, wanting for, those thoughts all matter. There's an author, his name is Paul Tripp, and he says, no one talks to you more than you, so you better pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. And it's true. I mean, if we just stop, but, but the difference is, I think we can go through life and never even stop and say, well, what am I thinking about? What is it that consumes my mind? It's a good thing to even journal. What are the thoughts that come back to you over and over? What do you hear in your mind? What you think about matters. The book of Philippians tells us that we are actually to think about things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. And I would call this the Philippians test. To even stop once in a while and think as you're being consumed by a thought, just ask yourself, well, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? You know, this kind of weeds out a whole lot of thoughts that don't fit the Philippians test, right? And so, so it's a great thing for you to even to hold on to some of those words. And sometimes it's not one of these things, but a combination of these things, but, but is what's consuming you, does it pass the Philippians test? So he says, if you've been raised with Christ, then what you think about matters. You have to seek the things above and you do that by thinking about the things above right? We do this by taking thoughts captive. That's what the scriptures say. So sometimes when you're thinking about something, you have to say, no, I don't want to think about that. And the only way really to do that is to replace that thought with a different thought. You can't just say, stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Well, I guess if you just did that constantly, you could, because then you'd just be thinking, stop thinking about it. But I'm not sure that fits the Philippians test either. So we want to replace these thoughts with with different thoughts. So sometimes a good way to do this is just with scripture. For instance, you may be struggling with feelings of being unloved, with even hearing in your, in your thought life, I, you know, I'm just, I'm nothing. Nobody loves me. I just, is anybody ever gonna love me well? You know, none of those are gonna pass the Philippians test, but, but maybe the best thing you could do is to memorize Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I continue my faithfulness to you. And so what do you do? You just say that verse over and over and you, maybe you need to write it on a, on a little card and keep it in your pocket and you take it out and you read it again. And when your mind starts to go to that, man, I, nobody's gonna love me well. No, wait a minute. He has loved me with an everlasting love. He's gonna stay with me and continue with me and he's faithful to me, right? Maybe it's Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, you know? And maybe you're feeling a sense of abandonment or loneliness and, and that's a verse. So we need to find those passages in scripture that are work to renew our mind. And, and, and I'm telling you, you have to do this. You have to find those answers to the, to the negative things that are going through in your mind. And you have to set your minds. It's a beautiful word that says set your mind. You have to make a determined effort to say, I am not going to let this consume me. And I'm going to think about, meditate on something else. Scripture is a great way to do it. Another 
example or way to do this is sometimes God has spoken a word over you. Do you know what? I know that's a little bit freaky for some people, but God still speaks. Did you know God still speaks? He's still actively speaking in people's lives. And we need to be careful to always test everything and hold on to the good is what the scriptures say. But sometimes in, in, in prayer time or, or something, God has spoken a word over you. And sometimes what you need to do is go back to that word over and over until it becomes part of your DNA. We just had the soul care conference last week. Many people heard a word from the Lord as we prayed with them and for them. They're going to have to go back to what they heard when the lies come in, when the words that aren't truth come in, when the things that don't pass the Philippians test come in. They're going to have to go, wait a minute. The Lord said to me, and they repeat it. So let me tell you how this plays out in my own life. I had this experience in uh, India. We had gone to India. This is quite a few years ago. Uh, and it was uh, grueling, difficult. I've, India is a very difficult place, very dark. Uh, just a lot of, of, of hardness there. And I would say just demonic presence there. It's just a very dark place. Uh, beautiful People are beautiful, but, but it's just a place in bondage. And, and we had done ministry all day, and it was exhausting. And, and that particular day, we were in these little villages, and there were children that were suffering from polio, which just wrecked me, because why should any kid have polio when we know we have a, we have a vaccine for that, right? It just, it just, there was just all kinds of things that just were messing with me, and just it broke my heart. And uh, so we came back. We got back pretty late that night, and I couldn't wait to go to bed and, and go to sleep because I was exhausted, and I went to bed, but sleep didn't come because my mind was racing. My mind was going over all the things we'd seen. And, and in a lot of ways, um, I just, I, I was feeling very inadequate for all the things I've seen. Like, I have nothing to offer here. I don't know why I'm even here. I uh, couldn't sleep. It was probably two or three in the morning. I went out, and I sat on the balcony uh, in India, and uh, it's one of those defining moments of my life. And I started to uh, whine to God. I, we could say I was praying. Uh, it probably fits the category of prayer, but it was more like whining to God, just to be honest with you. And I was sort of saying, you know, why haven't you given me the gifts that I need to be effective in places like this? I had what we commonly call gift envy, right? There's certain people can do certain things. Maybe when Zoe was, was singing today, some of you had gift envy, and like, why can't I sing like that? right? We, we all do it. It's just part of, part of our fallenness, I guess. But I was having gift envy, and I was, I was really suffering from a lot of insecurity of like, man, I got nothing to offer these people. I got nothing. I don't even know why I'm here. Uh, it just was tough, right? And so I'm whining and whining and whining to God. And at some point, I probably took a breath, gave God a chance to say something to me. Sometimes we don't hear from God because we never stop talking. So I, I'm not sure I stopped talking or if I just ran out of words. But uh, eventually, uh, I had this profound moment where God said to me, I've given you a voice. And I knew what he meant when he said that. He was talking about preaching. He was talking about teaching. He was talking about even my voice within the leadership of the church. And he said, I've given you a voice. And he said, are you going to use the gift I've given you? Are you going to complain about the ones I haven't given you? Right? It was, it was both a, an encouragement and a bit of a scolding, but very loving uh, the way I heard it. But, but let me tell you how this plays out in my, in my head. Sometimes uh, on Sunday mornings or Saturday nights when I'm sitting in that seat, uh, I begin to feel insecure. I begin to feel like, man, I don't even know. I mean, I used to make copies for a living, right? I, I, I don't know if you guys know that. That was my job before I went into full-time ministry. I worked with Kinko's. And sometimes I actually sit there and think, how did I get here, man? I used to make copies for a living, <laughs> right? It's, right? I'm not sure any of those thoughts fit the Philippians test, but you know what I hear? I hear God say, 
hey, I've given you a voice. Are you gonna use the voice I've given you, right? It's a word that God spoke over me that allows me to move in confidence. I'm not saying this with any sense of pride. I'm, I'm as shocked as anybody at what I get to do for a living. But the point is, it's the word that God gave me that I allow to take the thoughts that I shouldn't be having captive and walk up on the stage here and preach or do the things that God has called me to do. And you all have similar experience where it's either through scripture or a word spoken. Maybe somebody once laid a hand on you and they spoke a word and you knew that was a word from God. You need to go back to that and use that as a way of setting your minds. Get that? You set your minds on the things above. You think about the things that pass the Philippians test. Okay, let's keep looking at the passage because there's two more things that, that come out of this. So it says that if you are um, raised with Christ, right? So if you've made a decision to follow Christ, you gotta seek the things above. You do that by setting your minds on the things above. And then look at verse nine and 10. It says that you have to put off the old self with its practices. And the, and the third thing is you have to put on the new self. Now, typically if I'm teaching, I'm gonna do two and unpack two, and then I'm gonna do three and unpack three, but I wanted to do these together because they fit together. It's really the same moment, if you will. You're, you're taking off one and you're putting on the other. And the other problem is if you read this passage, and this is the complicated nature of the passage, is it very easily can be read, read as a list of do's and don'ts. It can become a passage that actually fosters a religious spirit because basically there's a whole list of vices and then there's a whole list of virtues. And if you just make the list on your legal pad, does anybody still use legal pads? I mean, in your phone, in your notes, whatever. If you make a list of vices and you say, okay, I'm never gonna do these. And you make a list of virtues and say, I'm always gonna do these. First of all, you won't be able to without the spirit of God at work in your life, but you can try to do that. And then you can say to yourself, well, I'm okay. I'm okay, God's got me. I'm okay with God because I've done the very thing that Colossians tells me to do. Everything's good, right? But that's religion. And that's not what God is, is calling us to. So if you look at verses five through nine, the list of the vices, he says, put to death. And just so you know that, the image that you should have and put to death is put to death. It, it literally means obliterate. It means destroy it. I actually think that when we don't put these things to death, they kind of live on life support somewhere in our life. And when the time is right, they rear their ugly head, they come back to life full-fledged and they're there again. So he's really saying, no, you need to kill it. You need to obliterate it. It needs to be put out of your life, right? So put to death, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Again, I'm in verses five through nine, idolatry. Um, then he talks about this is part of what's bringing the wrath of God. And then he talks about that you, you got to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. I'll talk about some of these in just a couple minutes. And don't lie to one another, right? So it's just a long list of behaviors that we need to, to get rid of. And it can lead us to this legalistic approach to our faith if we're not careful. That's the complicated nature of this, this sermon. One of the things we heard over and over in soul care, uh, and I remember the very first time uh, Rob said it, uh, there was sort of a, a silence that fell over the room, but he said um, these words exactly. He said, God is far less concerned with your sin than you think he is. God is far less concerned with your sin than you think he is. It's your heart he's after. Because he knows if he can change your heart, then your behaviors are gonna follow, right? But if your behaviors just change in your hearts, then it's A, it's not gonna last, and it's just gonna come out somewhere else. So it's your heart that, that God is after. 
True life change, true change comes when the king of kings enters in our lives, when we surrender our lives and God gives us a new heart, when we are transformed from the inside out. But here's the deal. We are not passive in this process, right? We don't get to just be shazammed and all of a sudden nothing bad comes out of us anymore. It just doesn't work that way. And, and even when I hear people talk about that when they give their testimony, I'm always a little bit skeptical. I, I lived all these bad ways and I said yes to Jesus and I never once thought about him again. I'm always like, well, that hasn't been my experience. Right, But I know God is calling me to walk, to, to put to death and to walk in a different way. So we are not passive in the process. We have to show up. We have to participate in the good work that God is doing in us. Right? We have to participate in the good work that God is doing in us. We are called to work out our salvation. And hear me really clearly, church. We are not called to work for our salvation. We are called to work out our salvation, very, very different. Dallas Willard, an incredible writer on spiritual formation, writes these words. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, right? All I'm trying to say here is you need to show up. And if you look at the Colossians passage we're talking about, he's telling us that we have to show up because he's saying you have to take off one thing and you have to put on another thing. You have to be very mindful. You have to take your thoughts captive. You have to set your minds on the things above. If you're just waiting for the big Shazam so that you're perfect, it's not going to come because you're being called to participate in the good work that God is already doing in you and through you. The imagery that Paul is using is the imagery of clothing. He's really just saying, take off your old, ragged, stained, nasty clothes and put on the new ones, right? And this can only happen in a, in a position of surrender. It can only happen when you say yes to Jesus and then you are empowered by the spirit of God at work in you. Anytime you try to do this in your own strength, you will fail. That is really the message that comes throughout all of the scriptures. Anytime somebody tries to do something on their own, they fail. Anytime they lean into the power of God at work within their lives, then they succeed. If you're still in Colossians, I want you to turn back to Colossians 1, verse 29. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It will come up on the screen. But this is a, a cosmic paradox of what I'm talking about. I just want you to see it. It's a mystery of what it means to have a life in Christ. So Paul, again, is writing Colossians, and he says, for this I Toil. He could say for this, Paul, myself, toil and struggle. So who's toiling and who's struggling? It's not a trick question, Paul. And then he says, with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is a non-logical sentence. If you were in English class, somebody would mark you down for this sentence. I toil with his energy, right? I do this, but with the strength of God at work within me. It's a clear picture of, I have to show up, but I have to lean into the spirit and what the spirit is doing in me and through me. There's a couple more passages I want you to see. If you wanna turn there, that's great. Again, they'll come up on the screen, but go back three books in, the, in your Bible towards the front of your Bible, Galatians, excuse me, Galatians 2, uh, verse 20. I'm gonna read it in the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, just one of the translations that we use mostly here at Grace. Uh, if you have an NIV, uh, it'll read almost the same, uh, but then I want to read it in the King James because I think it's almost clear in the King James. So uh, what we've probably heard before and maybe even memorized, I've been crucified with Christ there. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. This is a great verse to memorize, a great verse for you to sit with when you're struggling with certain sin patterns. This is a good verse to take those sin patterns captive, right? So this would be one of those that you could use. But I think the King James actually captures what Paul is trying to say much better. So look at it in the King James. It says, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, he's saying I'm dead, right? I am crucified with Christ, but wait a minute, I'm not really dead, nevertheless, I live, I'm dead, but I live. But then he said, well, I don't really live. Well, well, I don't live, right? I mean, he's sort of going back and forth. If you read this, it's, it's a beautiful picture. I'm crucified with Christ. Well, nevertheless, I still live, but really I don't live, but it's Christ that lives in me, right? So it's this beautiful picture of the spirit of God at work within us. And the life I now live in the flesh as I live my life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. He empowered me. He gave me everything I need to make it happen. Right? Jesus loved you so much. He gave his life for you so that you could walk in the Spirit and have victory over those things that are holding you back. So let's go back to Colossians 3. Let me just show you um, just a little bit more about this, this passage that I just think is incredible. This is one of the, uh, the glorious outcomes, I would call it, of walking in the spirit, of, of putting on the new self and taking off the old self, of setting your minds on the things above. Look at verse 11. He says these words. He says, here there's no Greek Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so verse 11 starts with the word here, and if you think about the word here, it's like a destination, right? It's more of a, a in this location. And so it's kind of an odd way to start a sentence, but, but you got to ask yourself, where? Like, where is he talking about? He's talking about in that place where a group of people, let's call it Grace Community Church, seems appropriate because we're here, where we all live in the spirit, where we all set our minds on the things that are above, where we all take off our old selves and put on our new selves. And then he says, guess what? There's unity there's incredible unity, so much unity, in fact, that it breaks down all of the social markers that exist of your day. So he lists the social markers of that day, which are what, like being Jew or, or Greek or circumcised or uncircumcised, which was a religious marker or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but in Christ is all and in all. And I think if Paul were writing this today, he would probably say, when we are in this place where we've, where we've set our minds to things above, where we've put on our new self, there's no Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists. There's no denominational separation. Look, I'm pretty sure he would have said if he was writing it to us, there's no Democrats and Republicans. As a matter of fact, I wish he had said that. It would have made the last election season way less stressful for me. Not that it's all about me, but would have been easier, right? No Democrat, no Republican, no black, no white, no rich, no poor. It doesn't mean you're not those things. Of course, he's not saying people stopped being Greek. He's saying, look, that doesn't matter. The, 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 in Christ, the unity that we have in him trumps all of that stuff. What he says is we are a new, he says we are a new race, right? We are, we are a, a new humanity. And that new humanity trumps anything else that would come and divide us. We have something that's pretty special here at Grace, right? What's our, what's our mission statement? Let's get it good. That was good. That was really good, right? So when we look at our, our mission statement, you know, that whole idea of being a mosaic, it's, it's, 
it's not by accident that it's in there. It's the heart of God. It's, it's all throughout the scriptures. This idea of unity. If you're doing the 15 minutes with God, you're doing 1 John right now. What is 1 John all about? If you love God, you're gonna have unity with one another. You're gonna love people, right? So unity is a big part of it. And we chose the word mosaic because of what a mosaic is. It's a bunch of broken pieces of glass that are different shapes and different colors that when they come together, they make something beautiful and something amazing. That's a picture of what we want as a church, but not because we think it's cool or trendy, but because it's the heart of God. It's what he's asking us to do. It's what happens when we set our minds on things above, when we put off our old self and put on the new self. All right, so there's a list of virtues that you can see in there if you start in verses 12 through 14, right? The virtues are things like a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, uh, bearing with one another. Um, if you have a complaint with one another, I love this. He says, forgive each other. And then just in case you didn't catch it, uh, he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, that's a pretty high bar, right? So what that does is it disqualifies you saying, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but you have no idea what that person did to me. Oh yeah, I know forgiveness is what God wants, but you don't know how bad that was. So he kind of pulls the rug out from under all of us and says, look, you either forgive or you don't forgive. If you want to give Satan ground, don't forgive. If you want to move in freedom, then you got to forgive the way God has forgiven you. How has God forgiven you? He's forgiven you everything right? When you were enemies with God, yet he died for you. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you went through and you just started to contrast the vices and the virtues with one another, um, it's pretty amazing because the two lusts are completely incompatible. Uh, one of the words that's in the vices is covetousness. If you have an NIV, I think it says greed. Uh, and that's just really this ruthless, haughty belief that everything exists for your consumption, including people. When you are greedy, we always just think of it as a money thing, but it's way more than money. It's just everything exists for my benefit. That's what it means to be covetous or to be, to be greedy. Well, it's impossible to have a covetous or a greedy heart and at the same time be a person of love and compassion and kindness, Right? One of, the, one of the vices that we see is anger. It's interesting if you go back and you look at that word, this is not a, an outburst. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a, a chronic feeling of anger, a kind of almost like a, a, an undercurrent that's in your whole life. I know I've told this story often, but there was a point in time when a group of men came to me before I was ever on staff at Grace, uh, and they just said, look, you, you are an angry person, which really made me mad. <laughs> go figure. But I couldn't see it. It was totally a blind spot for me. I thought I was just Mr. Funny Guy, fun-loving. Everybody loves Doug. I'm not angry. And then I would go home and yell at my wife, right? So uh, we laugh, but it's true. I had a, a problem there. I had an old self of anger that it had to be stripped away. Well, you can't have anger and humility and forgiveness at the same time, right? So, so you have this list of virtues, and they all work to offset the, the list of vices. It's a, it's a beautiful picture says in there, don't lie to one another. Did you know that anytime you tell a lie to somebody, it is an attempt for you to gain an advantage over them? You wouldn't tell a lie if you didn't want to gain an advantage over them, whether it was an emotional advantage or a financial advantage, whatever reason. And sometimes you don't even know the reason, but I'm telling you, the reason is because you want to gain an advantage over the person. So you tell a lie and you say, no, you can't do it. You got to put that to death, right? So you look at the virtues, you look at the vices, you figure out they're completely incompatible. We have to obliterate them through the spirit 
at work in our lives. So here's the summary of today's sermon. I just want you to hear this. It's just, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you are, now be. And I have done a work. I have made you something in particular. You are, now be what you are. One of the people that I've been reading as I've been studying uh, Colossians, a guy named David Garland, and David Garland says these words, and this is just a more fancy way of saying you are, now be. He says, theological indicatives are the basis for ethical imperatives. I wrote this on my whiteboard in my office, and people kept walking in my office, and they'd read it, and they'd go, I don't know what that means. And then they'd walk back out of my office. So I'm gonna tell you what it means. A theological indicative is just a statement of truth. It's any time we, we have a, a statement that tells us who we are or, or tells us uh, how we're to behave or, or what God has done for us. So in the scriptures, there's all kinds of theological ind- indicatives. There's all kinds of, of statements about what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So here's some theological indicatives. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are light. In Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are sons and daughters. In Christ, you are empowered. In Christ, you are given a new heart. In Christ, you are God's workmanship. In Christ, you are a holy priesthood. You know, I could do this for an hour. There are so many statements. There are so many theological indicatives about who you are. That is your new self, right? And so what I want you to hear, because it's so important, is it's the theological indicatives, it's the statements of truth about who you are that become the basis for how we live out a life of ethics, how we live into the virtues, those, those imperatives that, that are put into scripture. Those are the statements that say, don't lie, right? Don't covet, don't be greedy. Those are, are the, theologi- or the, the ethical imperatives. You get it? Who we are is the basis for what we do. Sometimes we get it backwards. We think it's what we do that allows us to be who we are. And the minute we do that, then we practice religion. The minute we do that, we're gonna fall on our face, actually. It's allowing to sink into who God has made you so that you can live out the very thing he's already done in your life. You are, now be. So the band's gonna come up and they're gonna take the TV away and we're gonna take communion together. Um, And I love that this is communion. Uh, If you've been around Grace very long, you know that uh, this is, I I love communion anyway, but this is a great week for us to have communion. Because I think there's no doubt in my mind that God knew that the people of God have a tendency to forget. In our humanness, We forget, that's why they had the Passover feast. So for 1400 years, they would meet once a year to remember what God had done for them, to remember who they were as God's people. Do you know that it's a fascinating thing that God set the people free. He did the work. He says it over and over in scripture. It's my outstretched arms. I set you free going all the way back to to Egypt and the slavery. God set them free. And then he gave him the 10 commandments. You know what he was doing? He was saying, you are my people. You are free. You are my chosen ones. You are a royal priesthood. All kinds of theological indicatives. And then he says, now be, live a life that, shows that. That's what all those those ways of living are about. Those are the ethics that he wanted to live by. But 
The freedom came first. He didn't say, if you guys would just follow the 10 commandments, then I would overthrow that evil guy that has you in slavery and you'd be free. No, he set them free. And then he told them how to live. And the same is true for us. 1400 years, they practiced the Passover meal, right? And then Jesus comes along and it was at the Passover meal that he kind of flipped the switch a little. He said, I've come to fulfill the very thing that the Passover looked forward to. And he knows that we have a tendency to forget. So every time we come to the table, we're told to do two things. One, we're told to examine our lives and ask the Lord, is there any offensive way in me? Is there anything I need to leave here at church today that's holding me back? Is there any covetousness? Do I have a problem with any of the things that Doug has been talking about? God, is there anything you wanna show me that I need to leave at church today? It's called confession. It's a pretty simple thing. You just pray it in your hearts and you confess. So the scriptures say you examine yourself. And then the other thing that happens is we're to remember because we tend to forget who we are and all that Christ has accomplished on the cross. So every time we take, we're to remember his body broken and his blood shed. So if the servers would come and grab the plates, we're gonna hand them out. Uh, here at Grace, if you've said yes to Jesus, this is for you. We don't care if you're a visitor, uh, if you call somewhere else your home church, that's okay, but we just want you uh, to partake this. If, if you've said yes to Jesus, uh, feel free. If you just take the elements and hold them, uh, then we will take them all together uh, in just a couple minutes. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us as they get ready to hand it out. And then we're just gonna sit where you are and sing. Um, and then we'll take the elements together. So Lord, I just pray uh, that you would bring to mind what you wanna bring to mind, that we would let go of whatever's uh, keeping us from fully experiencing your spirit in our lives, that we would be willing to examine ourselves and to say yes to you wherever you're calling us to say yes to you. And I just pray that you would help us to remember. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll be back in a moment.
after they took the wine and the bread that they sang a hymn and uh, 
we're not big on hymns right around here, are we? But we're going to sing a song anyway. So John's going to lead us in a song. I just encourage you to stand and sing with us. Death could not hold you. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are holy. The praise of your glory. Before you are raised in life for me. You have no Sunday. God bless you. If you need prayer, we have people down here who would love to pray with you. I'm the first one in line to die when the cavalry comes. Yeah, it feels like the great divide has already come. 